Bill Stone is an explorer, an explorer that pushes the boundaries of cave exploration. He's also a brilliant engineer, one that comes up with what are sometimes considered crazy ideas and wildly innovative technology. And it's this technology that he uses to further his and his team's exploring abilities. Because on this trip, Bill wanted to map what he felt to be the deepest cave in the world, if only he got the chance to prove it by fully mapping it. He knew it had so much more to offer than what he mapped so far. The problem was he could only bring so many dozens of scuba tanks deep into the cave, so he designed his own breathing device to eliminate the hordes of tanks. At 4,500 feet below ground, his newly designed and tested MK4 breathing technology would be put to the ultimate test. They would be so far underground that a lot of the passages were underwater and required scuba gear to get through. But traditional scuba tanks didn't last long enough that deep. That's why he created the MK4. By the end of his expedition, the team of 45 would dwindle down to a team of seven. I'm Tatiana, and this is Occurrence. The Washaka expedition was something Bill was very passionate about, because if he could finish mapping a cave named Sistema Watla, not only would it confirm his belief that it's the deepest cave in the world, but he could accomplish something that he'd been trying so long to do. Because this wasn't his first trip into Sistema Watla. His first trip was in 1976. But it was his first time everyone would be using his new invention under those kinds of high-risk circumstances. Because the goal was to be almost a mile underground for days and weeks at a time mapping the cave in the southern Mexican state of Oaxaca. Before taking experimental technology into what could potentially be the deepest cave in the world, they had to test it. Before they headed over to the cave, his team of 45 explorers first tested his breathing technology off the coast of Florida. The MK4 scrubbed exhaled air and recirculated it to extend the amount of time a diver could stay underwater. It had triple redundancies, and it was debugged in a ridiculous amount of simulations, but there could be no errors a mile underground. Where they were going was so deep underground and so dangerous that a simple mistake would be fatal, and a true full-scale rescue effort wasn't happening. There were waterfalls inside the cave, there were entire sections submerged in water, and it was very, very cold. With how deep and intricate the cave system was and how tight and taxing the journey in its entirety could be, the survival chances were slim, even for his experienced team that regularly carried almost 200 pounds of gear down 65-foot vertical shafts. The Florida testing was fine, so they started the multi-week-long expedition in Sistema Watla Cave on March 3rd. Out of the 45-person team, there was a main point team made up of Ian Rowland, a mechanic for the Royal Air Force, Noel Sloan, an anesthesiologist, and Steve Porter, a property analyst. The first few days, they laid out 750 feet of rope in the cave, but Bill wanted more done by that time. He was known to push others as hard as he could. In his mind, it was up to them to self-regulate. It was a, we're all adults here, know your own limits type of situation when caving with Bill. They were getting ready to get to the other side of San Augustine Sump. The sump looked like a J-trap on your everyday bathroom sink. It was filled with silt and stalocytes. 
it was over a quarter mile long and about 40 feet wide. And around this time, Jim Brown, who was the second most experienced person using the MK4, decided he wouldn't dive. He didn't feel comfortable with the vibe in the cave. Bill was agitated. Things kept going wrong. He just didn't want to push his luck. Underground, Bill was practically obsessed with whatever his goal would be, so he was absolutely not picking up on the fact that people were getting a bad taste in their mouth about the trip. But it was time for others to dive the St. Augustine. In the past, they weren't able to get through it because the scuba gear they used didn't have enough air capacity to make it, but they had the MK4 this time. In America, divers are trained to dive in pairs. In other countries, with systems similar to the sumps in this cave, they're taught to dive alone. And in explorations like this, diving alone is even more important. A buddy increases the risk. They could kick up silt, making both divers go blind. They could panic. Any number of issues could arise that causes one diver to try and save the other diver, and it ends with two lives being lost instead of one. Every diver on Bill's team understood that if you got into trouble, you were on your own. So Kenny Broad went first to explore St. Augustine using the MK4 on March 27th. He successfully made it through to the sandbar on the other side on the first try. He got back to the group and told them all about it. Most people on the team that deep into the cave lived for discovery and exploration. You don't sign up and train to do something so dangerous and extreme if it wasn't a passion. And Ian Rowland had the passion and the excitement because hearing Kenny talk about the trip, what he saw, and how easy it was with the MK4 had Ian ready to go scoop some booty too. Which, by the way, is caver slang for discovering new terrain. Before Ian set off, he told Kenny, quote, Don't call out the Calvary unless I've been gone for six hours. End quote. And then Ian was off. It was around 4 p.m. At the same time, Noel Sloan got a bad feeling. It was the same feeling he got in 1992, when a tragedy happened. So Noel and Steve go to the nearby town, and Noel went to see a shaman for a tarot reading. The shaman pulls four cards. They were for yourself, family, friends, and a question that you had. The card that was pulled for friends was the death card. And I would just like to say the death card in tarot does not literally mean someone is going to die but this immediately sent Noel back to the disaster before this trip. In 1992, Bill held a five-week camp to prepare his team for the dangers of the Watla system. It was in the Jackson Panhandle of Florida named Jackson Blue Spring. It had similar features to what they would experience on their expedition now. Rolf Adams was an Australian caver and was usually in dry caves, but he signed up for the expedition to Sistema Watla. During the training, he was also getting his cave diving certifications. And on the last day of training, Rolf and an experienced cave diver named Jim Smith did one last dive since Rolf wanted to make sure that he was prepared. Rolf swam into a hole in the cave wall entrance that had a fixed line. They both went about 2,000 feet in before turning around to come out. About halfway back, Jim turned around to check on Rolf and saw him floating by the cave roof and switching his primary MK for his backup one. Once he was done, he signaled that he was fine and swam back to the line, and they just continued on. A few minutes later, Rolf frantically swims up to Jim and is signaling that he can't breathe. So Jim gives him his MK4 while he switches to his own backup. 
and while they're doing this, they failed to pay attention to their buoyancy and ended up sinking to the floor of the cave. Silt flies up all around them, and this caused them to quickly increase their buoyancy, but they overdid it and shot up to the cave ceiling. When they hit the ceiling, the MK4 fell out of Rolf's mouth, and he pulled away from Jim and swam into the darkness. Jim immediately swam to the cave entrance and surfaced in the nick of time because he was pretty much out of air. When they found Rolf's body and equipment, the investigation showed his equipment was working perfectly. He still had air in his tanks. What killed him was pilot error, and his inexperience and panic caused him to drown. He was a friend of Bill's, so Bill gave a eulogy at his funeral and postponed the current expedition a few months which ended up turning into two years due to funding issues and logistics problems. But it had now been three hours since Ian left, and Kenny started getting nervous. He had been boiling tea water, and Ian should have completed the dive by now. It was 7 p.m. Ian was diabetic and insulin-dependent. He'd been diving for years managing it with candy bars. But Kenny started to worry if Ian remembered his candy this time. If he forgot it, he could be in trouble. But Ian did tell him to wait six hours, and there must have been a reason for that, so he waited. By the fourth hour, Kenny set up a lantern and the pulley platform system so Ian could get himself out of the water if he came back while Kenny went to go find people who would be willing to go rescue Ian if he didn't return. When six hours passed, with no sign of Ian, Kenny woke everyone up. He told them his fears for Ian, and Bill said they needed to be well-rested before putting together another rebreather in case something happened to Ian's. He felt if Ian was trapped on the sandbar on the other side of the sump, he would be safe from hyperthermia and could just rest there until they were able to get him. But just to be sure, Bill asked Don, another diabetic in the group, about their opinion on it. And they came to the conclusion that if Ian had his candy bars, if he was having a low blood sugar event, they would sustain him overnight. Kenny didn't like hearing that, and he was visibly upset. So Don calmed him down and just explained that everyone had done so much during the day, they were all tired. That was not the place to be in, trying to pull off a dangerous rescue in an already dangerous environment, and everyone's brains are half off because they haven't rested. So Kenny calmed down. He understood the reasoning, but he didn't like it. That night, nobody slept well. Around five the next morning, everyone was up and getting ready to go help Ian. Bill and Kenny put together another MK4 while Noel, Steve, and some British cave divers from a nearby cave went to try and get more help. Once the device was assembled, Kenny cleared the sump in 30 minutes. When he got to the other side of the sump, he called out for Ian, but got no response. He saw footprints go up one side of the sandbar and disappear over the hill, so he swam around to the other side and found Ian floating in a few feet of water. The lights on the MK4 were flashing, so he thought he might have made it just in time and went to try and save him. But once he touched Ian, he realized that he was too late. So Kenny sat there and processed what happened before he went back and told Bill, Ian drowned. They're 4,500 feet below ground a waterfall raging nearby, and Bill had a hard time processing the sentence. He didn't really hear what was said, he felt it. There was something about living that far underground, for weeks at a time, that Bill had come to understand, and that was the fact that people died, 
he had already lost somewhere between 10 to 20 friends to the exploration lifestyle, and something he despised was how they took on greater risk than astronauts for NASA, with less external support, and in a society so obsessed with safety, everyone overlooked them. The explorers willing to go risk their own lives to go into unknown territory, where, quote, every step forward is one step closer to what might be the world's deepest cave, it's a holy mission, end quote. They don't get state funerals, no buildings with their names on them, but they are doing the important work. But Bill didn't say that right then. Instead, he looked around and realized that's not where everyone else's thoughts were. Bill, who was someone team member said, when a life is on the line, there's nobody more reliable than him, was looking around to see everyone had lost faith in him. They thought his experimental breathing device killed Ian. They were nervous to try and use the MK4 again, and with everyone being underground for 12 days at this point, they were honestly too tired to try. Bill hoped his device wasn't the reason another one of his friends died, but he would have to go get Ian's body and his gear about 300 pounds altogether. While going through a silt-filled 1,400-foot tunnel filled with freezing water and trust his advice to help him make it back. It was a long shot, but he wasn't going to leave his friend, and he had to make sure the MK4 wasn't faulty. I can't imagine the sheer amount of different emotions he had to be feeling, to have to trust your invention, knowing it's the only hope to get your friend and clear its name. An hour later, Bill set off on his solo recovery mission and made it to the other side of the sun. He observed the area where Ian was, and noticed there were no signs of struggle. It looked like he fell asleep and died, with the MK4 dangling beside him. Bill clipped Ian and his gear to his chest, and started the journey back using the guideline Kenny laid previously. He had to be careful, because the only way Bill could manage to bring Ian back was by using the buoyancy device on Ian. He had to keep just enough air in it to keep from sinking, but not so much that they would shoot to the roof. But, of course, Bill accidentally overinflated the vest, and Ian flew up, which made him lose his grip on the guideline when he shot up on top of him. He got pinned between the roof and Ian and started hyperventilating, which, underwater, can be deadly. He was looking at his dead friend strapped in front of him and felt the ceiling push against him from behind. If he was using traditional diving gear and normal air, he'd be in trouble. But he was using the MK4, his own invention, and as long as it didn't fail, he at least wouldn't run out of air. But Bill did finally calm down and think clearly enough to deflate Ian's buoyancy vest to trigger a freefall and grab onto the guideline. He started the journey back again, but about halfway through, he let too much air out of Ian's vest and started to sink rapidly. He fell off the line again and started frantically hitting the vest inflator, but it wouldn't inflate back up. So they crash-landed onto the floor of the sump, which caused a huge amount of silt to kick up. Bill laid there for a while, catching his breath, looking at his dead friend, and waited for the silt to clear. Once it did, he made his way back to the guideline. And three hours after he started his journey, he returned. He was exhausted, and Ian already started stiffening. The rest of the crew greeted them and covered Ian's head with the wetsuit hood, and for the next five days, they traveled 4,500 feet back up through the cave system 
to bring Ian's remains home. On the way back, day 17 underground, a surprise hurricane hit the coast and sent 10 inches of water into the cave. It raised the water table 20 feet and trapped 14 members 3,000 feet below ground. Bill had already made it above ground at the time and was forced to wait for the water table to lower again. Ian was sent for an autopsy, and the results would cause a split in the caving community and how they felt about Bill. But when the team made it above ground a few days later, pretty much everyone bailed. The only person who stayed to actively explore was Barbara, and she was Bill's girlfriend. She was the most inexperienced person on their entire team. The others who stayed included Noel and Steve, but they just waited at camp while Bill and Barbara continued their original mission of mapping the cave for another 18 days, two miles of previously unmapped land, to be exact, and they named a large chunk of it after Ian Rowland. They never reached the end, and so the system of Watla isn't considered the deepest cave on Earth. It's the fourth deepest, but it is the deepest in the Western Hemisphere. Bill believes if they ever do map the entire cave, it will prove to be the deepest in the world. The data recorder on Ian's MK4 revealed that the device worked perfectly on his final dive, and it was concluded that he had a hypoglycemic blackout. According to Bill, in the Wired article written by Jeffrey O'Brien, where I got most of this information from, Ian set out without a candy bar and got so excited at the undiscovered land that he pushed his body to its limits. To this day, there's discourse about if Bill is responsible for Ian's death or not, but the MK4 is today's rebreather, used by divers all over the world. Bill Stone, at the time of the article, had lost 16 friends to cave exploration and had to recover seven of them himself. Losing Ian was hard, but he had to press on, because according to Bill, if he hadn't, the trip to Sistema Watla would have only been an adventure tale. And Stone isn't an adventurer. Like I said at the beginning, he's an explorer. And the difference between the two is information. Bill said, if you don't bring home data, you've accomplished nothing. It's a stunt. It's a story. Leave your thoughts in the reviews or comments. And don't forget to follow or subscribe to hear more stories like this. All sources can be found at occurrencepod.com. See you next week.